In a time when it feels like fake news is coming at us like a hurricane, the Harvard Data Science Review podcast is digging into the world of disinformation, misinformation, and yes, fake news. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review. Today, our editor-in-chief, Shaoli Meng and I, talked to two figures at the forefront of this murky world, discussing whether this is a new thing or if history is simply repeating itself with a few new tools in the tool chest. We have Scott Tranter, the CEO and founder of Optimus Analytics, and Hani Farid, professor at the University of California, Berkeley, with a joint appointment in electrical engineering and computer science and the School of Information. So, Hani and Scott, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, we're very much looking forward to this conversation on, you know, things that I think most of us get interested in, but also get worried. And Hani, I want to start with you that this concept of disinformation or misinformation or, or fake news seems getting to the popular media about five years ago, and these terms have been used exchangeably that even for us sometimes get confused what these terms really mean. So can you help our listeners to understand these terms, particularly if there are any difference between them at all? We typically talk about misinformation and disinformation as slightly different things. Disinformation is an intentional misleading um, information. That is the person that is posting or um, amplifying knows that the information is wrong and has malicious intent. Okay. Misinformation is a little bit more innocent. Somebody maybe maybe on Facebook sees something that is incorrect, is the result of a disinformation campaign, and forwards it on to somebody else. So we distinguish those because although the end result may be the same, bad information, false information is out there, the intent is very different. And of course, that just means the strategy to counteract misinformation and disinformation are going to be very different because in one case you have let's call it an innocent bystander and in the other case you have a malicious actor what about fake news where does fake news fall into these two categories yeah i tend not to use that term honestly because it's just gotten so politicized i think fake news unfortunately has meant to mean i read something in the newspaper that i disagree with <laughs> i think we should try to stick to reasonably objective measures of truth and falsehood. And I understand I'm the first person to admit that while there are very clean things that are true and things that are false, there are a lot of things in the middle. But I think the term fake news I don't like because it tends to malign the media and I think it tends to create mistrust and distrust of our institutions and I don't think that benefits us as a society or as a democracy. You know, I feel like, at least for me, I really only started to hear these terms really 2016-ish. But is this, Scott, is this a new thing? Or is there some sort of precedent to this? There's certainly a precedent, but I, I'm glad Professor Free brought up fake news. I'll never forget the first time I heard the, the term fake news used. I was watching a CNN broadcast, and they were talking about, you know, the Russians were, were basically putting out fake news. And I remember saying to myself, I'm like, oh man, I know what's coming next. The next thing, Trump's going to hear it, and then he's just, he's going to turn it, and lo and behold, literally an hour later, Trump's giving a, giving a speech, and he's calling everyone fake news. And I remember thinking to myself, it was a lot like yellow journalism in the, in the turn of the 19th century, when you had all these partisan papers and partisan pamphlets. You can even go back to the Revolutionary War um, and look at, you know, people like what Sam Adams used to do, or John Adams, or some of these people, they would, they would, 
um, you know, they would sensationalize information is what I would say. And I think that's where fake news, maybe to use a better term, um, sensationalize it. There might be some truth to it, but you add so much on top of it where it becomes misinformation or right out fake. One of the examples I like to give out of the, you know, staying in the Revolutionary War is when George Washington was crossing the Delaware, one of the things his generals and his lieutenants used to tell the soldiers, like, look, the Hessians across the river, they want to kill you and they want to eat all your babies. Well, they want to kill them, but they don't want to eat the baby. Like, that's not, but it was it was a good sensational thing and it wasn't in a newspaper or anything. But like, these are the types of things where you take a little bit of truth, you put sensationalizes, you can encourage people to do something you want them to do. So fast forward now, right? When we see things, especially around 2016, where people talk about, you know, what the police want to do to you or with Black Lives Matter or whatever, you basically take it a little bit too far. And there's a little bit of kernel of truth there, but they put so much on top of it where it just gets out of hand. And I think that's sensationalizing or that that spin on news and information that didn't come out of the last four years. That's been around for hundreds of years. So it's really uh, useful to think about these histories, because particularly if anything can inform us, you know, how did they fight then? So I turned the question to Honey that at that time, do you know how, how did they, you know, fight back and particularly newspapers like New York Times at that, at that time, how did they become a more reliable source, at least then? Yeah. So first of all, Scott's absolutely right. The weaponization of misinformation is not new. As long as we've been talking and since the printing press has been indicted, we have been trafficking in lies and innuendo and sensationalism. What is new, however, of course, in the last few years is the scale at which it operates. Now, billions of people around the world. And because we've democratized access to publishing information on social media and on the internet, everybody is essentially a threat vector. <laughs> you don't need a printing press anymore. You don't have to be the New York Times. Anybody can start rumors and innuendos and lies and misinformation and run disinformation campaigns. And then you have, in addition to democratizing access to that, you also now have the underlying algorithmic amplification that is social media that promotes the most sensational content because that's what engages us. Mm -hmm. And then you have all the users, getting back to the definition of misinformation, who then promote that over and over again. So getting back to your question now, look, when the New York Times gets something wrong, they run a correction. Mm -hmm. And say what you will, no mainstream media outlet is perfect. They make mistakes. But we have to at least agree that the goal is not to make a mistake. <laughs> the goal is to get it right. There are editorial standards at most mainstream media outlets. And when they get it wrong, there are consequences to it. People literally lose their jobs and there are corrections that are being made. You can't say that about Facebook. You can't say that about Twitter and you can't say that about TikTok. The goal is not to inform us. The goal is basically to extract data from us and deliver ads to us so that the companies can make a lot of money. And that's a very different business model. And I'm not saying the media is not in the profit-making business. They are, absolutely. I think sometimes to a detriment. But the goal is to inform. And you can't say that about Mark Zuckerberg, that his goal is not to create a more informed citizen. And I think therein lies sort of the tension with the way news has bled into social media. More than half of Americans get the majority of their news on Facebook. And so the mechanisms we have in place to safeguard editorial standards, corrections, consequences, libel laws don't work in the Internet anymore. And that's, I think, part of the reason why we're seeing the mess that we are seeing today. As of you know, a couple years ago, you have the Facebook stance of we are a platform, whatever anyone says they say. That's not our problem. Then, you know, there's this enormous public pressure to 
basically become a publisher and editorialize what people are saying. But the problem is there's so many users, Facebook can't editorialize everything. So to an un, someone who does not study this, me, it feels like it's very much picking and choosing what gets, you know, sort of editorialized and what doesn't. So how does that work when you're, you know, you sort of change your stance to we are going to be a publisher, but you are not subject to the libel laws that publishers have been subject to forever? So I think there's two things you want to think about when you think about publishing on social media. And look, let's just talk about Facebook because it's sort of the 800-pound gorilla here. So one is, should Facebook be held responsible for every single piece of content that its 3 billion some odd users upload every day? And the answer, of course, is no. They should not be held liable in the way that the New York Times should be held responsible for every single word that is published in every single story that is published every single day. I don't think any reasonable person would say Facebook should have that same responsibility. But here's what you have to understand about Facebook. On any given day, four petabytes of data are uploaded to Facebook. That's 4,000 4, gigabytes of data. That's an insane amount of data. But what shows up on your newsfeed is not arbitrary. Right? Now, since about 2000, in the, the mid-2000s, Facebook turned over a chronological newsfeed, just whatever showed up was whatever was in the order, to an algorithmically curated newsfeed. Right? So what Facebook does is they pick their winners and losers, and they decide what's on your newsfeed. Now, how do they decide? They're making decisions on what engages you for the longest amount of time in their platform to extract data from you and deliver ads and make money. So what Mark Zuckerberg wants you to, to believe is he should not be the arbiter of truth. He should not decide what is and what is not. Fair enough. But somehow he's uncomfortable doing that, but he is comfortable unleashing his algorithms, deciding what you see, read, hear, and ultimately believe every minute of every day. You can't have it both ways. If you want to be the town square, then get your thumb off the scale. You can be a town square, right? But he's not a town square. And I'm saying that you have some responsibility for your algorithms. And I wouldn't argue that you have the same responsibility as the New York Times, but you have some responsibility if, for example, 64% of people who join a hate group do so because you recommended to them to join a hate group. I think you have a little bit of responsibility. I agree with everything you said. And I think some interesting insight I don't know Mark Zuckerberg, but we're roughly the same age and we came through the same time. And I was a 2004 um, user of Facebook. I put in my sonomastate.edu email, got it all. And I thought it was fascinating. Like this is pre-newsfeed, all this kind of stuff. And I'll never forget, he actually said it in 08, right after Barack Obama, where he's like, look, we're in town square. I'm actually, the first time I, I think I ever heard him say he was a libertarian, right? So he has like very altruistic views. Like, look, you say what you want to say, you, you know, do what you want to do. And this is back when the newsfeed was probably still chronological or just in the algorithm thing. I think what he, what he missed is, and I think this is what he figured out over the last couple of years is, if you would have told Mark Zuckerberg in 2008 to 2010 that algorithms are biased, he would disagree. He'd be like, how can they be biased? They don't have emotions. They don't have the flaws of humans and all those things. It's a very computer science 101 answer. Math isn't biased. But what the problem was is what he realizes is, is, yeah, the algorithms push up to the top. They give you recommendations of what it is. He just didn't realize his stuff was being gamed, right? And we see it on YouTube. We see it on anything else. Everyone else figured out, or you look at Twitter trends or everything, everyone figured out roughly how the algorithm worked. And they said, look, if I can get 500 people to click like on this or push on that within the hour, the algorithm's going to push this up and then it's going to snowball, right? And so I, I think it was one of those things, like on paper, it sounded really good. From, and I, I happen to lean, I happen to agree with those. Like, I don't want Mark Zuckerberg curating my news, but it's a little bit of naivety to think 
that you are going to build an algorithm that can't be gamed. Because by definition, I'm going to figure out how to game an algorithm if I want some sort of outcome out of it. And so it's almost like the seeds of 2008, 2009, 2010, when he was telling everyone, look, we're just a marketplace. We're going to be light touch. We're going to let people do what they want. We're only going to give people what they want more of because the algorithm is just going to say, hey, 500 people click like on this, so then must be good. That was the seeds of fast forward to 2014, 2016, even 2011, 2012, when it, there's some sort of evidence this disinformation, misinformation stuff was being played around by a lot of governments even before 2016. Like that was the seeds of it. That's where they said, look, we're not going to be checked on. This can be gained. And, and I think that's 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 what's going to be going forward. And I think, you know, to, to expand it a little bit more, we're probably going to see it swing the other way, right? Like, I imagine you're going to ask us about the New York Times or Facebook saying, look, now we can talk about the um, COVID-19 being a potential lab leak, right? Like, that would be an example where they, they locked down on it early because they thought they were trying to put their thumb on the scale and now they have to pull it back. Like, they're, it, they're getting into territory that Mark Zuckerberg never wanted to be in 10, 12, 13, 14 years ago. And this is the reason why, because they keep making mistakes and they keep getting, you know, hit from left and right about it. So this is a truly fascinating uh, conversation, and I really appreciate this. I'm sure our, our listeners uh, would appreciate it as well. And uh, and I guess that I'm going to put both of you kind of on the spot that if you are Mark Zuckerberg, like, how do you do this? Clearly, we would all agree it shouldn't be everything is on, online. That's clearly wrong. But on the other hand, there is the issue of free, freedom of speech. There's who's making the judgment. How do you guard against the bias that, you know, one group considered as a bias against the other? All these issues for, you know, particularly, uh, honey, you as a, as a scholars, how do you think about these issues? Like, and providing guidelines can help all of us. First of all, I don't think we should be asking CEOs to make these decisions. The fact is that they have a conflict of interest. They're trying to, in fact, they're mandated to maximize profits. And so they're trying to run a business and their business is to make money. And that's what Mark Zuckerberg has done very well for Facebook and his shareholders. And to ask him or whoever is in his position to do things that are diametrically opposed to maximizing profit is naive. And this is why we need government intervention. This is why we have regulation. The reason why cars don't explode when they bump into a fire hydrant is because we started suing the car manufacturing to make sure that their cars are safe. Food, pharmaceuticals airline travel, products that we buy are safe because there is a liability when you create an unsafe product. You I can't know. say that about the internet. <laughs> there is very little to no liability for direct harms that come from your products. And we shouldn't ask Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg or whoever's in that position to fix this. We should ask those on Capitol Hill to say, we will hold you somewhat responsible if you act recklessly or if you should have known better. And if your products, whether they are digital or analog, lead to harm. And in my view, that's really the only way forward here is, and, and by the way, the, the, let me add one more complexity to this. We are talking about US companies and we are talking about 350 million people in the United States. There are 7 billion people in the world whose products are affected by this. And we have seen in Myanmar, in the Philippines, in Sri Lanka, in India, in Brazil, horrific violence, dead bodies on the roads. We are not talking about hypothetical threats. We are talking about lo loss of life and limb, horrific violence, one of the worst genocides 
of, of, of the recent years has happened in Myanmar because of what's happened because of Facebook. The UN has said it, Facebook has said it, we have said it. And you know, it is the consequences of these global platforms is phenomenal. And it terrifies me that we're relying on a handful of congressmen and senators on Capitol Hill who still don't understand how Facebook make money to try to regulate this sector. And that is very worrisome to me. And I, the, the fear, by the way, is we've let this get away from us. I mean, we should have been having this conversation 15 years ago. As you said about, you know, the senators, I remember watching the Zuckerberg after Cambridge Analytica when Zuckerberg and the senators and, you know, one of the senators, well, how does the Facebook make money? And you're like, oh, my God. Oh, boy. Um, So but, you know, I mean, you've also seen how these social media companies have also allowed for enormous positive things to happen. You know, the Arab Spring, for example, never would have happened without social media. But as you said, there's these unintended consequences of what's happened in Myanmar. And in effect, you have a social media company with a couple CEOs who can really determine the fate of history of humans, right? They decide to block certain things or block a certain civil movement or what you see in Venezuela, all of a sudden one side's going to win and one side's going to lose because of the CEO of a social media company's decision. So what kind of regulation would actually stop this? What can we do with this data? Like, what would the law be that you're going to write? Okay, a couple of thoughts. One thing is whenever somebody talks about the positive things of social media, they always talk about the Arab Spring. And you're right, but I would say that is one of very few examples. <laughs> and I would argue that social media peaked during the Arab Spring and it has been downhill ride ever since. Um, so you're absolutely right that there have been positive things, that we have given voices to marginalized groups. Um, look, George Floyd's killing was broadcast over Facebook. Would we have had the Black Lives Matter movement the way we did? There is no question about it. But also at the same time, you can't question the horrific harms that have happened from social media. So what does the regulation look like? I would like to see a very light touch that takes Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which gives these technology companies huge, phenomenal protection from civil and criminal responsibility, and just carves away ever so slightly that says there is going to be some responsibility I'm not going to hold you solely responsible for the acts of bad people on your platform, but you have a little bit of responsibility where we leave room for small startups not to have to work within this um, regulatory regime, but the big boys and the big girls have to. And we just add enough of a liability that they feel like they have to start building safety into their products, I think is the first right step. I don't believe that there is a fundamental technological limitation to making Facebook and other social media platforms safer. I think there is simply no incentive. These companies are making tens of billions of dollars. Why would they stop? They won't stop until there is a regulatory pressure that says, we can sue the bejesus out of you if you get this wrong. Let me follow up a little bit on that and turn to Scott as well. You previously talked about everybody will game the system, right? What Hani just said, a little bit of light touch, well, you know, leave some rooms, but that could that create incentive for game the system? Because, you know, you obviously, as you said, why they stop? They want to maximize their benefits. Look, I agree with everything Professor Fareed said. I think in reality, I don't know that anyone's capable of a light touch, especially Congress. Having known a few <laughs> people are going to be on those committees, like my old boss in Congress used to say, Congress is great at overreacting after the fact. <laughs> like that's what they're really good at. 
This is one of the few issues. Everyone asks me what's a bipartisan issue. Guess what? Hating the tech companies. Everyone hates Facebook. Everyone hates Twitter. So like something's going to happen. I don't know if it'll be Section 230 or something else, but I think it, it, in that scenario, people will figure out how to game the system because I think if you really want to eliminate it, if we were being a little bit hyperbolic but serious at the same time is, is you just remove Section 230 all at once and you, you force them to spend 20 to 30% of their revenue on minders is basically what it is, monitoring every piece of the content. Pornhub had an issue a month ago where they were letting on child pornography and someone came up and said, well, I've got this great, I got this great machine learning algorithm that's going to look at everything and it's going to catch 80% of it. And they're like, no, 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 no. We can't catch 80% of child pornography. We've got to catch 100% of it. And the guy said from a mathematical point of view, like, what are you talking about? I have an 80% success rate in a visual-based algorithm. This is off the charts. Yeah, you got an A in stats class, bro. And, you know, go, go get your doctorates. But that's not good enough for the public. And so I think that's where... It's probably going to end up being a light touch, but then there are going to be bad actors and what I will call gray actors. Gray actors meaning I don't think they're doing anything illegal, but they're definitely gaming the system to get out whatever information they want. You're going to polarize some people on this kind of stuff because it's going to overreach in one sense. Someone's going to say, look, you're using the law to squelch out my belief for what I believe to be true because it's going to be right 80% of the time. Um, and 20% it's going to miss. <laughs> let, let me add one thing. Scott's absolutely right. There is not a person on Capitol Hill who doesn't hate uh, the tech industry. But here's the problem. They hate them for very different reasons. The left hates them because they think they're destroying society and democracies. And the right hates them because they think they're anti-conservative, which means when you go to look for solutions, we are, t we are not talking the same language. We all want to change something. But if we don't agree on what the fundamental problem is, we have a very different notion of what the solution is going to look like. And that worries me a great deal. We've talked so much about the disinformation and misinformation that comes out of these social media companies, and rightfully so, we get to pick on someplace like Facebook. But, you know, at the same time, it's a question of, like, who do you trust? So, you know, the New York Times, okay, which I would think of as a super reputable source, they had a headline that said, you know, QAnon, now as popular in the U.S. as some major religions. Well, it was actually that 16% of people believe something that QAnon said, which is very different than belonging to a religion. Or even just last week, um, in their, their uh, headline about they were only children discussing the current Israel-Hamas uh, conflict, um, you know, one of the photos of a young girl that they reportedly killed during the unrest was a reprint of a photo from 2017. And there are many other discrepancies during these stories. And on the other side, you have Fox, who have, you know, many things to their name about things that aren't correct. Uh, Dominion voting, rigged election is just one of them. You know, how do we even know what news sources are trustworthy? Because I can tell you, if you tell me... I only watch Fox News, or you tell me I only read the New York Times, I start to get a feel for exactly what your ideology is. So how do we even trust any of these actual news organizations? First of all, I think it's a little bit of a false equivalency to put the New York Times and Fox News on the same, saying, well, they both get it wrong sometimes. I don't think that's true. Fox News is clearly much, much more partisan. And don't get me wrong, there are plenty of left-leaning outlets that are as partisan as Fox are. I just don't, wouldn't put New York Times there because I think, look, the New York Times makes mistakes. There's no question about it. We all make mistakes. So who do you trust? And the answer is, well, sort of everybody and nobody, right? I mean, the fact is everybody wants to get their news by reading the headline and never actually reading the article or never reading the follow-up article or never sort of coming back to something. But the fact is, is that, 
you know, understanding what's going on in the world is incredibly complicated. And you can't get it from a tweet and you can't get it from your crazy uncle on Facebook and you can't even get it from the New York Times. You have to get your news and your information from a lot of different sources, number one. And you have to suspend judgment for a long time. Everybody wants to rush to judgment because they read the things that confirm their worldview and they're like, aha. Or they see things that uh, disagree with their worldview and they're like, fake news. I tend to lean to, to organizations that I believe genuinely are trying to make me a more informed citizen. And that includes the New York Times, NPR, BBC. I mean, there are plenty of news outlets that I think are trying to get it right. But you can't just be like, I only read the New York Times and what they say is the gospel. I think that's a mistake. You have to be thoughtful. You have to come back at things. And look, you know, things change, right? The, the world is a very complex thing. And so they're always, you know, what do they say? The, the, the more educated you get, the more you realize you don't know anything. <laughs> and that's really important. The fact is we actually know very, very little. And so I think there's always this suspension of judgment and these hard lines that we tend to draw, particularly as we become more partisan, I think is really, really important. So let me actually follow up on that because I really wanted to ask both of you, uh, honey, you're from the kind of, uh, you and I were more kind of educators, you know, in terms of school education. And Scott, you're at the forefront of kind of informing the public. So I want to just ask a question really about education. For example, if someone says, look, you know, we know there's a big problem and we know education is important. I'm willing to invest, you know, this much money. Tell me how should I do it? Should I uh, put money into the public campaign or in the school or all of the above? I'd love to hear you guys thinking about this, this uh, education front. I don't teach nearly as much as Haney does, but I teach one class on quantitative and qualitative polling. And we do a whole section on how you construct surveys around so that you can get people to elicit responses that aren't biased. And it's fascinating. We do a couple of different ones. One of them we do is like, how do you construct a survey to get an accurate response out of someone about what they think about abortion, right? And what they learn is, is depending on how you phrase the question, you might get a different answer from, from these different people. What it leads into is a whole bunch of different, different theories around, look, if you put something in a headline and the headline is the only thing you read, that's what people are going to take from it. They're not going to look at it. The takeaway is, is in an environment where people read the headlines, people you know, want the confirmation bias. What we need more of is just plain old critical thinking. Um, and the same thing in statistics, right? When we look at a data set and I get an answer that I think is, wow, this number is great, or this really solves my problem. The first thing I do, wait a second, where's the data wrong? Where did I screw exactly. this up? Exactly. When, when I get that eureka moment when I'm doing a model, that's the first time I'm like, I screwed this up. I'm going to go double check. We don't have that reflex when you're just the average person reading the news. You read the headline that says, you know, Trump may have won Arizona and they're recounting it. You're just great. I think they should. Let's let's go for it. I don't need to read any more. I'm glad they agree with me. Right. Like, and I think that reflex, and I don't know how you teach that in school. I don't know when you started, but basic critical thinking is a silver bullet to all this. I think Scott's absolutely right. The word is critical thinking. You know, the thing I often hear from from students is, why do I have to learn biology? Why do I have to learn physics? Why do I have to learn chemistry, math, engineering? I'm never going to do this. And the answer is, it's not about the biology. It's not about the physics. It's not about the chemistry. It's about scientific process. It's about critical thinking. You have a hypothesis, you have data, and what can you can conclude? And this is the power of education. It really is what Scott said is about this idea that you can think 
critically about problems and get out from under your own trap of confirmation bias. And look, we all have it. I have it. I have a particular political view, but I'm aware when I'm falling into the trap of it. And I think it really is only that critical thinking and better science education and better math and technology. And even look in France and in the UK, they now have digital citizens classes. How do you acquire information online? Look, we teach our kids how to be safe in the offline world, right? Don't approach strangers. Do this. Don't do this. We sort of need the same thing online. Arguably, the online world, given how much screen time kids are facing these days, is as dangerous as the offline world. And they need to be taught how to be a better digital citizen. One of the questions I have about this is, you know, the sort of psychology of you know, we're talking about early education and critical thinking, but Scott, I know Optimus did a panel basically on who believes disinformation, who believes misinformation, and who do you believe? I'm trying to think about when I hear something or read something, is it the New York Times that I believe? Is it my father that I believe? Is it Shaolin that I believe? What, what did you guys find in that poll? So it's interesting. We do those types of media consumption, like where do you get your news? How do you consume it? And then who do you trust? It's something we track because if we're trying to shape message, we want to know who you're going to believe. If you believe Chuck E. Cheese, then guess who we're going to put the information out of? If you believe Fox News or whatever, that's what it is. And then, you know, Pew and on Gallup and a lot of other public public sources do this as well. And what we all generally conclude is anywhere from 60 to 90 percent of the public basically distrust some form of news. Right. Like, and, and, you know, they might say, look, I don't trust Fox News at all, but I do trust that, you know, MSNBC and vice versa. Like, I, I wouldn't ever read New York Times, but I do read the Free Beacon or whatever it is. But the one interesting facet, no matter wh- whenever you split it by party affiliation or income or even region, that's pretty the same. But the one funny thing that comes down to it is people do believe their friends. Right. They believe people they associate with. Right. Because like if you think about it, it's logical. You're friends with someone. You don't necessarily believe all your friends. But if, you, if you're friends with them, you probably have some common interests. And you may even have some commonality in beliefs or commonality in education or whatever it is. And so that's when you combine it with Facebook and Twitter where it's designed. I want to follow my friends. I want to see what my friend thinks or whatever it is. And, you know, it just takes that whole groupthink theory, which is a big important thing in, in what I do, which is message testing and understanding people's opinions and behavior. It's like, oh, man, if I can figure out who you trust and then I've got this platform that basically says, hey, if I insert this message into this group of people, then it will, you know, the whole group will basically ingest that message without me having to pay any money. It's extremely important. And, you know, it's fascinating to me is the traditional news outlets, whether it be, you know, Walter, there is no Walter Cronkite at six o'clock where he would get anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of Americans watching him every night. And when he said in Vietnam went like there is none of that. Like, you know, it's David Muir on ABC and he gets six million people watching it. You know what? There's a rerun of The Hills on MTV tonight that's going to get more people watching it than David Muir. So like this, the, the audience is diffuse and they don't and the audience is very picky on who they trust. You go back to the, you know, when Walter Cronkite was on there. 80% of the people said, look, yeah, I trust Walter Cronkite. I don't think we'll ever see that again in our lifetimes, a media source or a media personality or anything like that that gets that level of trust. And I think that's the sad thing is because we need reference sets. You need some truth sets. You need something like that. You know, on, on that side of, you know, how you know what to believe, I, you know, I, I Hanny, I was looking at a, a, I think it was like a tweet or something that somebody had written about you. I think it was a video of Nancy Pelosi and it had been dubbed to make her look or sound drunk. And I watched it. I would have been like, that's her. She's drunk. I, I mean, I would, I would have had no clue. And I think you were saying that it was dubbed and that it wasn't true. 
how do general citizens, what's both of your advice to sort of general citizens to know, how do we know? Because to me, she was drunk on air. You know, like I can't tell the difference. First of all, stop, get off of Twitter. And this is my first advice. And the second advice is get off of Facebook. I mean, like seriously. <laughs> but look, so what happened with the video, somebody took a video of Nancy Pelosi speaking publicly and all they did was slow it down to about 75%. And she sounds drunk and it was hysterical. It's actually really well done. By the way, you could do that for your video. Record yourself talking on your phone and then just play it back at a slower speed. You sound absolutely you know, stumbling drunk. It's, it's very effective. And by the way, very low tech, no deep fake, nothing sophisticated. That thing got 10 millions of hits. By the way, Nancy Pelosi doesn't drink. I mean, just you know, bring some facts into this whole story. She, she doesn't drink. So what, what's, you know, what, how, do you, how do you prevent this? So first of all, does anybody really believe that the Speaker of the House is giving a press conference so drunk that she's slurring her words? Like, really, does that does that ring true to you? You know, the problem with these these stories is that they're just playing into the fact that some people don't like Nancy Pelosi. And, you know, I just I understand that we have political differences. I understand we may view the world differently, but I don't understand how we got to a place where we hate the other side of the aisle with the heat of the sun, <laughs> where we are willing and eager to believe the absolute worst in people that Hillary Clinton is running a child porn ring out of a pizza joint in DC and that the liberals are sucking the blood out of children. Like how did we get so partisan that we hate these people so much? And we have to understand that we can have differences without wishing harm on each other. We can have a political discourse and we can have a reasoned debate about things. But I think that we have to check our hatred of the other side. And that's the way you get around this. There's no, here's how you look at the video. Here's how you, no. Understand you are coming into these things with a horrific bias, both on the left and the right, and check it. Be aware of what your bias is. And by the way, particularly before you retweet and you re-like and you reshare, understand that you are being manipulated and you are being made a sucker. And that should actually make you a little angry. I think that really brings into this idea of, you know, the checking and the, you know, that makes so much sense to me. And I just saw there's a, a facial recognition system that you can go to online. You can put in a picture of anyone and then it'll find, it'll do facial recognition algorithm and it'll find pictures of this person anywhere else. And it's actually been used for stalking. And the reason I saw it in the news was because a guy, you know, had been stalking a girl. She had a restraining order. She moved away, changed her name, everything. And he ended up killing her. Um, by finding her through this website. And so these sort of checks that we're going to be starting to create by trying to combat disinformation actually have these terrible unintended consequences. So what do we do about that? Where does the leveling stick or the measures of justice work? So first of all, you're absolutely right. There are almost always unintended consequences with technology. And the problem with the, with the technology sector, in my opinion, is that too many technologists are what I call techno-utopians. Right? They believe that technology is inherently good and what makes the world a better place is more technology. And I think the last 20 years have proven that to be completely wrong. And often we build things because we can and not because we should. And more often than not, we build things without putting the proper safeguards in place. Almost every technology can be misused. Look, back in 2008, we developed a technology that can find and remove horrific child sexual abuse material, right? Very powerful technology, but we also recognized on the day we developed it, God, this can be really misused. And so we put checks and balances in place, right? We put legal constraints in, we put licensing constraints in, we controlled who got access to the technology. We didn't put it on the internet and sit back and say, well, let's see what happens next. 
And that is what a lot of technologists do. And I don't think that we are putting safety and thought in the forefront of developing technology and deploying technology. And I think we have to start doing that more seriously. The historical example of that is Robert Oppenheimer, right? One of the fathers of the, the atomic bomb. He wrote in his autobiography, he's like, I didn't really think through what I was doing what I was doing. I was like, oh, we're going to have unlimited power for everybody. But then he's like, I knew they were going to build a bomb, but I didn't realize the Cold War was going to be a result of it. Or in my other favorite example, when I, I agree with you, he said, I was explaining to people, I was like, do you know the first buzzsaw didn't have a handguard? <laughs> buzzsaw is really great, but it's, you can still screw yourself up. And someone said, okay, we got to have some, we got to put a, we got to put some, some tools around this, you know, yeah, so it doesn't, yeah. you know, take someone's hand off. Yeah, Scott's right. I mean, look, the physicist had the bomb to teach them the lesson. The biologist had chemical and biological warfare to teach them a lesson, <laughs> right? We, you know, this is sort of our lesson. We're living through it right now. But look, let's face it, the field of computer science is very, very young compared to physics and chemistry and biology. And so we're in that sort of annoying teenager uh, stage um, where we're still setting things on fire and giggling about it. You know what? We got to knock it off. We got to start taking more seriously the consequences of the technology that we develop. How do we do something here? For example, helping training our kids, like, you know, be safe online. Is there any particular advice for the parents? Let's certainly hope that for our generations, we're in this process. We probably, you know, will sooner or later, we hope we'll do better. But we have all the future generations out there. You know, whenever we have these conversations about online harms, particularly around kids, you know, the technology sector always says, well, we put these safeguards in for parents. And I think it's unfair you know, particularly given that these devices are strapped to kids' face 23 hours a day to say, well, it's the parents' responsibility. I think, again, this is where the government has to step in and say, look, we have a responsibility to, to protect our kids. Um, we take that responsibility very seriously in the offline world. I don't know why we're not taking it seriously in the online world. I'm not saying parents get a buy, and I'm sa but I'm saying that is an awful big responsibility to put on parents because the fact is you can't keep an eye on them 24 hours a day, and they've got these devices literally in their hands every minute of every day. And by the way, those products were built to be addictive. And so, you know, the technology company has created these highly addictive products and then says to the parents, well, it's your responsibility to make sure, you know, the, ki the kids are okay. And so I think we have to start thinking more seriously about how these products are addictive, the same way we talk about nicotine and alcohol and, and prescription drugs. And we have to talk about making sure that our schools, our parents, and society as a whole has the proper safeguards in place. And that has to start with holding the technology, these trillion dollar companies, <laughs> responsible for the damages that they are doing. Yeah, just kind of dovetailing that. It's it's, I, and I'm coming from the I, I am I'm the small government conservative libertarian angle here, and even I agree. Like you have to have some sort of regulation. You have to have some sort of I will use behavioral economic for this these trillion dollar companies to pause and say, yes, I am a town square, but maybe I won't let them do whatever they want in the town square. Maybe I won't let everyone you know bring a gun or whatever the the proverbial gun or something like that. And I think that's where it's at. I, I do, you know, and I think there is going to be some loss of of upside to that, whether whatever good that town square has or whatever the technology, there will be some mitigation of the good, but it, it'll be, you know, that's a, the, the mitigation of the good is, is, is so that everyone can enjoy it or not everyone gets addicted. These technologies are designed, we want to dominate your life, whether it be, I want all your attention, I want all your eyeballs, I want you to focus all your information through this, whatever it is, they're all fighting for it. And there's got to be some moderation and regulations probably where it's coming at. And now I'm probably gonna have like four clients send me a text telling me, 
you know, don't do that. <laughs> it, it, it is, it is, there is a requirement for it. We can't live in that. We can't live in a technology utopia. It's funny. Like everyone's like, Oh, it'll be like Star Trek. I'm like, no, it's not going to be like Star Trek. That's not how technology works. <laughs> it's not going to be Ayn Rand. It really won't. <laughs> I, I have to ask one final question. We like to wrap up these podcasts with one final question. Um, I know I have been duped many times. So I have to ask both of you, has there been a time where you have been duped by disinformation, misinformation, fake news, whatever we're going to call it? Have you been duped? Sure. And you're not allowed to say no. Yeah, no, sure. Uh, just recently, actually, this happened. A parent had created a deep fake of a, of a cheerleader, a rival cheerleader, and had distributed that deep fake. And I shared it on LinkedIn. And I remember when I shared it, I'm like, this doesn't really make sense. Right. Like some, you know, suburban mom creating a pretty sophisticated deep fake of a rival cheerleader vaping. And but, you know, I sh it was just one of those things where I just shared it. And I remember thinking when I did, it, I'm like, this doesn't ring true, but whatever, I'm going to move on with my life. And three months later, we found out it probably wasn't a deep fake. Um, it's still a little unclear what really happened. Uh, but the charges on creating fake media were dropped by the prosecutor. Um, but it fit a narrative for me, right? And the narrative was that deep fake videos are a threat. And so that fit a narrative. And so I was very quick to share with that. Um, that was the I most recent. I shared that in class. <laughs> there you go. I didn't even know. I you didn't even get the, you class. didn't get the memo. <laughs> I didn't get the memo. So the prosecutors <laughs> dropped the chart. I've been duped again. <laughs> yeah. By the way, it's still a slightly unclear as to what really happened, but it's almost I'll certainly. I'll tell myself that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But probably we got it wrong, Liberty. I we see. got it wrong. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to email my class because I totally shared that in class. Uh, along those same lines, now that we're two election cycles away, back in 2016, we used to have these big monitors with TweetDeck, and we would build these Twitter lists of like different things just so we could have this around and see what people were talking about in various political spectrums, various states, all those types of things. And we had this one Twitter list that's no longer there, so you can't go find it. But it was um, what we would call Tea Party you know, because we want to know what they were tweeting about. And when the, the congressional report came out after the 2016 election, where they were talking about all the Russian disinformation, and they actually listed a lot of the groups on Facebook and a lot of the Twitter accounts that were, you know, proven to be run by the Russians. Like, out of the 100 accounts we were following, like 60 of them were it, right? So, like, and, and again, it didn't affect any of the, the decisions we make, or at least I don't think it did, but it's like 60 accounts that I would check, you know, at least once at once or twice a day, I was reading Russian disinformation and it never occurred to me like, these guys are crazy. They can't be real. Like I, I, I had them in a section where it's like, no, this is what the Tea Party thinks. Um, and, and it fit what we were doing. And, it, you know, I use that as baiting myself in the news and what the people thought. And that's clearly not what people thought. And it's my job to know it. So it's one of those things like it get anybody and it's, it really feeds on confirmation bias. Right. Like it really is like you're, you're looking for it and they give you what you're looking for and maybe you shouldn't be looking for it. Exactly. Well, I, I can't tell you both um, how much we've appreciated talking to you today. Um, this has been an absolute fascinating conversation. And uh, thank you both so much for being on the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you, Liberty. Great to talk to you, Charlie. <laughs> thank you. And that is all we have for today. From me, Liberty Vittert, and my co-host, Charlie Meng, thanks for listening.